0: Well I've written a paper called Hedonic Hotspots, Hedonic Potholes, Vedana Revisited. And uh, to be honest with you, I I have since had some some second thoughts about a paper full of arguments, quotes, footnotes. Um, So I'll try to get a few things out which I feel I should probably read and quote and then I'll probably give up at some point and just uh, explode a few thoughts in your faces and hope that this is gonna stimulate uh, discussion and maybe further um, perspectives or fascinating vistas that uh, will come out of our gathering. I'd like to start with a little quote. It's a quote from the Connected Discourses of the Buddha and it's very short. It states, whatever is felt is included in suffering. Let me start with a little history. Back in 1844, an eminent French Sanskritist named Eugène Burnouf, a man whose massive Introduction à l'histoire du bouddhisme indien was read by Schelling, Schopenhauer, Emerson, Thoreau, Nietzsche, quotes very kindly, his German Indologist colleague called Goldstücker as defining the term vedana as a kind of irritability only in a larger sense. <laughs> yeah. So for almost 150 years, since there are Pali dictionaries in Western languages, lexicographers have laconically suggested that the meaning of Vedana is either sensation or feeling, terms that are A, neither exactly synonymous, and B, the latter of which is notoriously vague as it is popular. It is my understanding, based both on textual inquiry and practical contemplative exercise, I've been doing this for a number of years and my understanding of Vedana has gone through various iterations that both sensation and feeling are problematic translation and neither of them does justice to what is meant by Vedana in early Buddhist teachings. Moreover, I believe that while we can ascertain fairly exactly what this term means, we don't have a clear equivalent expression for it in Western language. It may be best to naturalize the Indian concept into our thinking. Meeting with the above translations of Vedana and meditative teachings, we are left with a number of questions. If Vedana is sensation or feeling, which of the two is more accurate? And indeed, what precisely do we mean in our own language with either of these two terms? Could Vedana mean something else altogether? Are there correlates for what Buddhist texts call Vedana in Western thinking, in Western psychology? Feeling, the English term most translators have opted for when rendering fame, is a famous semantic contortionist morphing according to context into a display of denotations. These range from mood, sentiency, subjective emotion, affect, perception, conscious state to sense of touch, impression, occasionally even to thought. Any of these meanings can be intended by the term feeling as is borne out by examples easily found. Any tr- translator, unless they explicitly narrow the term down to a singular meaning, must, in view of the sheer range of applications of that word, consider it as one of the worst possible candidates for rendering <laughs> a Buddhist technical term. All the different English meanings will invariably be conflated with the Buddhist notion, in this case, Vedana, the term purports to, trans- to translate. In view of Vedana's use in Pali texts, the term sensation is similarly problematic. If a sensation is an impression produced by impulses conveyed by an afferent nerve to the sensorium, so a standard medical definition, then such an impulse is rather the precursor of Vedana than Vedana proper and would, in Buddhist terms, be part of the process called contact, pasa, or more precisely, a tangible portaba. While the contemplation of bodily tangibles and somatic experiences is central to the practice of establishing mindfulness, such practices have their own place in the Satipatthana scheme under the heading of contemplation of body, Kainupasana, from which the contemplation of feeling tones Vedana are explicitly differentiated. Likewise misleading seems the equation of Vedana with feelings, close relative emotion, a term without exact equivalent in early Buddhist psychology. Emotions invariably involve affective and volitional aspects. The closest we come in this to this Western notion in Buddhist teaching is the third dimension of satipatthana exercises, the contemplation of mind states, cittanupassana, which cover indeed conative and affective dimensions of experience. But then these two are explicitly distinguished from the practice of contemplating vedana. Given the centrality of the term in Buddhist psychology and appraisal of Vedana is desirable. In Buddhist and in mindfulness words alike, the teaching is not given the place it takes up in the old contemplative psychology of the suttas. As the discourse between Buddhist concepts and their Western interpreters goes into its next round, Informed by a spread of meditation, better translation, a growing understanding of the Indian and Occidental history of ideas, the input of 150 years of psychology and recent interest of cognitive and affective sciences in meditation, seems worth to take a fresh look at Vedana and what learning applicable today could be gleaned from the insights of an ancient contemplative tradition. Given the old text's recurrent suggestion to understand vedana as a single mental evaluative process forming three possible and mutually exclusive reactions to mental and physical stimuli as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither unpleasant nor pleasant, I render vedana as feeling tone or preferably as hedonic tone. From Greek, hedone for pleasure. This latter term is a psychological concept in English usage since the late 19th century and apparently introduced as a translation of Wilhelm Wundt's notion of Gefühlstone, a concept he later elaborated into his three-tiered affect theory that still underpins many of today's affect theories. The OED dictionary identifies a donic tone as the degree of pleasantness or unpleasantness associated with an experience or state that can range from extreme pleasure to extreme play- pain. In choosing this term, I'm following a number of scholars, who have used the notion of hedonic tone since the early 60s of last century to render Vedana. Uh, Famous names, K. N. Jayatilika, Padma de Silva, Ross Reed, many others have followed them in more recent years. In fact, I have found venerable Analayo sometimes using these terms in recent years. (laughs) (laughs) Admittedly, the prevalent translation of feeling or sensation would be a lot less awkward than hedonic tone. However, they're not just misleading, one construing Vedana into an affective tone of experience, e.g., feeling, emotion, the other by identifying it with a felt somatic quality, sensation. Both also miss Vedana's crucial piece, the mind's evaluative response to experience on an axis of pleasure, indifference, and displeasure. In the following, I'll try to illustrate the meaning and function of the term Vedana in Buddhist teachings by sampling a few key Pali passages hoping to clarify and contextualize it in psychological terms. I'll mostly stick to Sutta material to avoid getting balked in later doctrinal developments. John, you may have heard him this morning, has uh, alluded to the 12th century commentary, Atasalini, who um, equated Vedana with the king. So the cook has access to the food, and tastes it, this is the Cetasika part, but Vedana uh, has access to all of the food and has soul um, enjoyment of all of the food. Yeah. So that is a slightly strained example from this morning, if I pick that up correctly. Um, The term Vedana is widely used in Pali, monastic discipline throughout the five Nikayas, also in the Abhidhamma. Emerging contextually from its use across these texts is a key notion of mind naming a decisive dimension in human experience, sometimes referred to as flavor, taste, or tone of any experiential event. The the crucial ingredient of this flavor is its degree of pleasure, displeasure, or indifference. The suttas leave no doubt that vedanā is of greatest import to human beings. One passage recurring several times in the numerical discourses plainly states that all things converge on hedonic tone. Doctrinally, the Pali suttas are quite clear about the role of vedanā and place it consistently in a number of well-known models of Buddhist psychology. As a Nama factor and one of the five universal functions present at any moment of experience, You may have heard John this morning claiming it to be seven factors, seven universal factors. That is just the difference between the Sutta take and the Abhidhamma take. The Sutta folks uh, have five factors and the Abhidhamma folks add uh, Chivitendria, life faculty and Ekagata, one-pointedness, on top of the five that are already present in the Suttas. Vedana further occurs as a link in the most common form of the Chain of Dependent Arising, Patita Samuppada, invariably between contact and desire. Vedana occurs as the second of the five aspects of human experience, the khandhas, and as the second establishment of mindfulness in the Satipatthana exercises. Also it it occurs in that John has referred to this morning uh, in some detail as the second step in the sequence outlining the perceptual process. An example of this would be the Hannibal Sutta he referred to this morning. Um, I spare you the etymology. The Nikayas, and this is the challenge, presents different descriptions of Edina. Some the most common uh, and widely found is basically that the suttas identify three kinds. A pleasant feeling tone, a sukha vedana, an unpleasant feeling tone, a dukkha vedana, and a neither nor feeling tone, called not unpleasant, not pleasant, adukkama sukha vedana. Uh, I'll come back to this in a moment. Another description found in the Kanda Samyutta identifies six kinds of vedana based on the six sense organs. Hedonic tones arising from visual stimuli, from auditory, gustatory, olfactory, tactile, interoceptive, and lastly from mental stimuli. This description, too, appears immediately plausible since A, it confirms the connection of hedonic tones to the preceding stage of contact, pasa, in the scheme of dependent arising, and B, likewise corroborates Vedana's ubiquitousness in connection to sensory experience as a nama factor and universal mind function. In the scheme of five aggregates, Vedana occupy a category of their own. The aggregates, more simply aspects of experience, are in early Buddhist teaching uh, a device to refer to what we might call an individual's experience. They are epistemological rather than ontological in nature and comprise all of an individual's inner and outer world. In the scheme of the five aggregates, Vedana is grouped as one of the four Arupa Kanda, the four formless aggregates connected to mental experience. It is, by the way, placed between body and the other three, which in some way seems to be significant that um, it holds a specific place there. Um, Vedana connect body and the rest of the Namakandas. The Tula Vedala Sutta explicitly defines feeling tones as both mental, Jetasika Dhamma, and connected to mind. However, the discourses state elsewhere that hedonic tones are also experienced bodily kayaka. Whatever friend a quote, whatever friend Visaka, this is Damadina speaking to her former husband, um, is bodily or mentally pleasant and agreeable feeling that is pleasant feeling. Whatever Friend with is bodily or mentally unpleasant and disagreeable feeling that is unpleasant feeling. Whatever Friend with is bodily or mentally neither agreeable nor disagreeable feeling that is neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling. The famous teaching of the dart offers us some clarification about primary and secondary feeling. The teaching explicitly um, speaks of being afflicted by a bodily pain and then the uninstructed practitioner uh, reacting with a lot of mental anguish on top of that bodily pain and thereby incurring a second dart. If the painful feeling was the first dart, then the mental anguish following would be considered the second dart. The teaching makes it clear that this is not uh, inevitable, that it is quite possible to have bodily unpleasant experience without creating mental anguish around this. Now the interesting part is not that this is, one of them is bodily and the other one is mental, but that one is primary and the other is secondary. So you can also have mental unpleasant experiences and add to that mental anguish. Uh, and you can, uh, having mental unpleasant experiences, not add to that mental anguish, and you stay with one dart rather than two. Vedana are both bodily and mental. This is borne out by further distinction of the term in, into five categories, whereby pleasant and unpleasant Vedana, based on mental, cetasika stimuli in distinction to bodily, kahika forms of pleasure, sukha and dukkha Vedana, are sometimes referred to as somanasa, mental ease, and domanasa, mental discomfort, respectively. Quote, and what practitioners is pleasant is is the pleasure faculty. Whatever bodily pleasure there is, whatever bodily comfort, the pleasant, comfortable feeling born of body contact, this practitioners is called the pleasure faculty. What is the pain faculty? Whatever bodily pain there is, whatever bodily discomfort, the painful, uncomfortable feeling born of body contact, this practitioners is called the pain faculty. And what practitioners is the ease faculty? Whatever mental pleasure there is, whatever mental comfort, the pleasant, comfortable feeling born of mind contact, this practitioner is the ease faculty. And whatever and what practitioner is the displeasure faculty. Whatever mental pain there is, whatever mental discomfort, the painful, uncomfortable feeling born of mind contact, this practitioner is called the displeasure faculty. And what practitioner is the indifference faculty? Whatever feeling there is, whether bodily or mental, that is neither comfortable nor uncomfortable, this practitioner is called the indifference faculty. Here the last category, indifference faculty, Upekindriya, consists of the above identified neither nor hedonic tone, the adukkama sukkavedana, and should not be mistaken with the lofty notion of equipoise or equanimity that uses the same Pali term of upeka, e.g. in the teaching of the Brahma Vihara, or as occurring in the fourth jhana. This latter is an invariably ethical quality and is considered part of the aggregate of formations, Sankara kanda, rather than the Vedana kanda, as is the case with Upek in our passage above. It may also be noted here, and this is contrary to later Abhidhamma tradition, that indifferent Vedana are attested in the above text, also to be based on bodily stimuli. The Abhidhamma, insists that the body doesn't produce any indifferent vedanā and only produces either pleasant ones or unpleasant ones. The text then continues to clarify what precisely constitutes the pleasantness or unpleasant and interestingly resolves the third category of neither unpleasant nor pleasant hedonic tone into either pleasant or unpleasant uh, according to the presence or absence of the quality of knowing. So Damadina the nun teaches her former husband further, please, pleasant feeling, friend Visaka, is pleasant when it persists, unpleasant when it changes. Unpleasant feeling is unpleasant when it persists, pleasant when it changes. Neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling is pleasant when known and unpleasant when unknown. It may be worth pointing out that the understanding of neither unpleasant nor pleasant suggested by the above passage indicates a zone of indifference rather than an distinct neutral point on the hedonic spectrum from this pleasure to this pleasure. This is often assumed by interpreters of Buddhist teaching when. when mistakenly creating into an entirely new neutral category, when indeed the text only supports what it states, a hedonic event that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, generally due to a lack of attentional availability, to weakness in the intensity of the stimulus, or to um, uh, lack of um, receptivities through say, um, other prevalent experiences. Such an event is not intrinsically neutral, but rather indifferent, and will lean either to the pleasant or to the unpleasant as soon as the knowing faculty comes online, whereby the threshold intensity for the stimulus is lowered and the event consequently, consequently is perceived as pleasant experience, or conversely, when knowing goes offline, availability and receptivity diminishes and the experience turns noticeably unpleasant. That's an important point. Many translators have basically created a category of Vedana and are called neutral, and I find no support for this in early Buddhist teachings, to be honest with you. Yeah. The Pali literally states neither unpleasant nor pleasant, and upeka is well documented as meaning indifference in the Brahmavihara teachings, the near enemy of upeka, as equanimity, is Upeka. it's not knowing indifference, and it's the same word in Pali as for equanimity. So I have a great difficulty um, basically acknowledging the a, th- a sudden appearing third category on an axis of beginning with pleasure, ranging via a big central part of indifference to displeasure. Now, it's also interesting to consider that intensification of pleasure would kind of move in this direction, intensification of displeasure would move in this direction, but an intensification of neutral. You can't really imagine, isn't it? It would have to move something like that. You don't have an intense, indifferent experience. Uh, Also, I think it's important to see that there is no encouragement to spend much time in the indifferent zone, at all. That's in no way uh, a suggestion by their teaching, that we should basically get rid of the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant, and stay as much in the indifferent. On uh, in contrary, we have encouragements to minimize the indifferent zone, because. To bring knowing to the indifferent zone will transform it into pleasant experience and to not bring knowing to that experience will bring it into the unpleasant zone. So there's no encouragement whatsoever I can find in early Buddhist teaching that we should maximize that indifferent zone by calling it neutral, for example, which I deem to be a, a, a Western invention. There's more uh, texts that group Vedana in c- other categories, I'll spare you the Bahu Vedena as uh, 5, 6, 18, 36, and 108 kind of Vedana, which are generally going coming from various permutations. Um, There is uh, two characters which disagree. One is Panchakanga and Udayi, who one is a monk and the other is Pasenadis Carpenter, uh, devout follower of the Buddha and a man of occasionally strong opinions. And they have a disagreement how many Vedanas the Buddha has taught. Um, And both fail to convince each other. Ananda overhears the conversation, brings the matter to the Buddha and the Buddha uh, gives uh, both of them, agrees with both of them and says, not just are both of them right with their notions of two Vedanas or three Vedanas, but in fact I have taught five, six, 18, 36, and 108 kind of Vedanas. So I'll spare you this. Um, There's various distinctions that the Satipatthana Sutta suggests, uh, obviously to distinguish these three types of feeling, but then an interesting distinction between Samisa and Niramisa vedana. Samisa has two meanings, one a figurative, uh, a literal and a figurative one, literally means fleshly, raw and untreated. the term basically means, in its figurative sense, sensory, as referring to the experiences on the basis of the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and tactile sensing, and the pleasure or displeasure obtained from these. Um, Samyutta text explicitly identifies Samisa um, with the Panchakama guna with the five chords of sensuality. These experiences are then contrasted with non-sensory Niramisa ones, consisting of the pleasure obtained from meditative absorptions. Figuratively, Samisa also can mean sensual, literally bait and material gain. Uh, Majima three refers to contrasts Niramisa non-sensual and non-material attitude focused on the Dharma. The pair of terms is often rendered, I believe, somewhat confusingly as worldly or unworldly, thereby blurring the meaning of sensory versus non-sensory. A couple of similes from the suttas to Vedina. I'm sure Banti and Allah you would know a lot more, but just a few. Pleasant and unpleasant, neither nor feeling tones, are likened to guests of a guest house, where people come from the east, west, north, and south to lodge, and the guests are from the different social classes nobles, brahmins, merchants, and workers come and lodge there. Similarly, another image likens feeling tones to various winds that blow in the sky, coming from all directions some of them hot or cold, dusty or dustless, mild and strong, some pleasant, some unpleasant, uh, and some neither. Uh, so they liken to pleasant, unpleasant, and neither nor feeling tones. In the kandasamuta, we have feeling tones being likened to bubbles when it is raining, and the bubbles burst on the surface of water. And any closer inspection reveals that the bubbles are insubstantial, are hollow, and short-lived. The conditional nature of feeling tones and their production through stimuli is pointed out by the conjunction and friction of two fire sticks that are used to produce heat. The analogy describes the production of both fire and feeling tone with the sticks, uh, when the sticks are separated and laid aside, i.e., the stimuli subside or don't meet with the sensory organism, the heat subsides as do the feeling tones. Impermanence of feeling tones is shown in an image involving an oil lamp, the lamp, the oil is impermanent and subject to change, the wick is impermanent and subject to change, the flame and the radiance are likewise impermanent and subject to change. The claim that on the basis of impermanent materials and the flame a permanent radiance could be produced is unreasonable. In the Vedana Samyutta, painful feeling tone, Dukkha Vedana is likened to a bottomless abyss. and so forth. So, given that Vedana are one of the universal factors present in consciousness with any experiential event, the implication is that they constitute three possible hedonic reactions to all our experiences and thus exert considerable influence on what happens in our subsequent response to that particular experience, attentionally, intentionally, affectively. Thus, they have a power to shape behavior in ethically wholesome and unwholesome ways, even though in themselves they are not intentional. Vedana exert their influence at the stage before we form attention, and while we seek or avoid pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones, we cannot intentionally have Vedana. If what is called passa, contact, the precursor of Vedana in both dependent arising and the perceptual sequence is the mere impingement of a stimulus in the sensory field, Vedana differs as it is evaluative and has the specific subjective flavor of being agreeable, disagreeable, or neither. In the light of its etymology and placement in Buddhist models of mind, Vedana can be easily understood as the pleasure-displeasure act aspect in the act of knowing. If perception, Sanya provides the cognitive framing in the process of knowing, Vedana furnishes the hedonic framing of knowing a particular experience, thus providing this experience with a specific and subjective flavor or taste. As I uh, indicated, I think it's easy to understand Vedana basically as a spectrum term. A single axis ranging from pain, pleasure, pain, displeasure to pleasure, with a substantial zone of indifference in between. This indifference subsides when A, the stimulus increases, attentional availability increases, the mind becomes more sensitive through mindfulness and bodily tranquility and or mental stillness. The problem of Vedana in Buddhist teaching is seen basically that it creates desire and aversion. That although vedana is intrinsically not volitional, it's also not entirely determined by past actions, as we learn from the Siva Kasutta, of which, where only one of seven causes uh, leads to the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent uh, feeling tones. Um, despite them not really being volitional, thereby qualities of skillfulness and unskillfulness don't really apply we, it's fair to say that the response of the human mind to pleasant feeling will be in most cases like, want, forms of grasping and then uh, the whole pattern when obtained some short term gratification, when not obtained frustration. Either way will such an attempt the enactment of forms of clinging and grasping on the basis of pleasantness will lead to a deepening of the experience of passion and make it more likely such passion to arise in the future. So Vedana, if followed, uh, triggers not just immediate desire, but it also triggers the long-term tendency, the underlying tendency of of passion. The same holds true for uh, unpleasant Vedana, which triggers not just local reluctance or resistance, but also long-term tendency to for aversion to arise further. Um, In the case of the Naidenor Vedana, it's ignorance that is both the short-term confusion we get because we don't pick up on something that we ought to be better picking up, and in the long term we uh, strengthen the factor of ignorance in our lives. There is obviously a huge bias in seeking and avoidance that governs most of our involuntary attentions, and one of the first uh, problems with Vedana is that uh, we don't know that we have them. As John alluded this morning, we have to assume that some of our Vedana work is actually not Vedana work, but is going to be post hoc work. We have to follow the traces in the sand back to where things happened. Because we can maybe only conclude that what has happened has actually stirred us in a particular way. And if that way is found to be not uh, preferable, uh, or not fruitful, then we may need to backtrack and see where the Vedana has basically governed our attentional and presumably our intentional activity. So Vedena shapes behavior, Vedena shapes views. You know, just think of how much cognitive dissonance we're trying to avoid simply by squaring other people's perception of ourselves with our own self perception. You know How studiously we minimize the discrepancies in favor of what we already believe. You know, we heard this morning about people just continuing to be depressed because that's what they know. Because, let, finally, it's more risky to do something new than to do uh, what I think you call in English the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Yeah. You know? So there is a tremendous uh, acknowledgement that if you look at our what we attach to, then that we attach to pleasant things would be making, you know, would be understandable. It doesn't quite work, but it would be a lot more understandable if you look at. I'm also a therapist. If you look at what we attach to, you could see considerable amounts of attachment go into perfectly miserable self-statements, Yeah, Why would I attach to a perfectly miserable self-statement? Because it somehow secures my notion of self. It it secures me in ways that are unfortunate, but at least I know where I belong. I think we have lots of this, uh, and so Buddhist teachings um, is somewhat mistrustful of unacknowledged Vedana, um, is somewhat mistrustful of strong Vedana because they also are a propellant for strong emotions. Yeah? Or in the Atta Kavaka that John quoted this morning, leading to views and to the taking up of stick and staff. Yeah? So conflict. Mm. Obviously, the pleasant Vedana triggered passion and underlying tendency for future passion. Unpleasant triggers resistance and aversion and underlying tendency to that. And indifference gives rise to not knowing and future forms of unawareness. If I'm trying to look at a Western take on Vedana, then things are not so easy because I do find a few connection points. Vedana as an axis of pain and pleasure has not gone unnoticed in the West. Epicure has has talked about it, and John Bentham in the modern world may have said a thing or two. if the latter one says, nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. He practically echoes Buddhist language, you know, this, is, this could almost be Pali. The sovereign masters evoke the notion of indriya, the Sanskrit and Pali term for sense organ, a dominant governing force, a power by which we do as we do. Yeah? Other obvious Western references to the territory of Aden are found in the study of affect and emotion. I'm not a specialist in this, but maybe beginning with Kant, where I have found these referred to and later formulated obviously more clearly by Wundt in late 19th century, where he came up with his model of three-dimension in affects where pleasure and displeasure form one of the axes. Yeah. The other one is arousal and pacification, and the third is tension and release. Uh, This model uh, has undergone a couple of updates and it's basically still in use and uh, can be found updated and enhanced in various theories of positive and negative valence and uh, emotion and affect. Another obvious connection point, I think, is the Freudian notion of the pleasure principle where at least we find a clear acknowledgement of our instinctual seeking of pleasure and avoidance of pain at the root of much of our behaviour, ranging from the biological to the psychological. Uh, More recently, studies in the nature of motivation and the concept of motivational salience seem to chart some of the terrain of Vedena. I hope to hear more about this from some of you guys. Bought your book yesterday, haven't had a look at it yet, but I'd be fascinated to hear more about this. I was really uh, hit two two years ago when I came across the work of an Austrian psychologist and neuroscientist and... (laughs) a man who has obviously no clue of Buddhism. Uh, he made a sort of tacit allusion that it might be useful to meditate in one of his footnotes. So I, I safely assume that he knows not how Buddhist some of his findings are. And uh, I remember him speaking at great lengths of incentive value and uh, two curves. Uh, this, this is really painful two curves basically one he calls incentive value and the other one he calls gratification value and those curves are tragically diverging from each other so um, he basically makes a point he's done a lot of research on addiction he makes a point that you can a become addicted to just about anything under the Sun because you don't get addicted to gratification that may help the addiction a little bit in the beginning but you do get addicted to anticipated gratification and that anticipation somehow does not seem to subside even if you don't get the gratification after obtaining the desired object. Now this is really tragic and the really bad news is this doesn't improve as you get older either. So I have never found a statement so devastatingly echoing the Buddhist notion of an insatiable thirst that even if you manage to obtain the object of your desire, you basically are worse off. because not just is the, uh, the, the, the gratification of shorter duration, you deepen the rut for that desire to recur with less of a chance to satisfy it. And I feel, uh, his name is Beer Balmer. Uh, has put his finger on there, and I trust uh, this must be in that field uh, very well known. Uh, If I was better learned in that field, I probably would have found that earlier, but it is fascinating to to find support for the Buddha's uh, poignant and the pathos of a desire that even when satisfied can basically not be satisfied. Uh, is kind of mapped in terms of you know, serotonin releases and dopamine axes and things like that. And you realize that we end up cultivating a form of desire that is disconnected from the gratification, even if we obtain the object, which I, I find somewhat disturbing. If we look at the task, uh, what Buddhists suggest to do with Vedana, then Vedanupasana, the contemplation of a donic uh, tone, can be described in a number of ways. Basically, acknowledge that it happens. That's the first and crucial piece. Um, I do that on meditation retreats, beginning with a very simple exercise. Within the context of, say, mindfulness of breathing, I just ask people, whenever they note that they have wandered off their primary object, to acknowledge whether what they have wandered off to is A, pleasant or unpleasant, and B, mental or physical. In other words, has it come out of their minds or has it come from an outer five sense stimuli? Just a scratch statistic, no analysis, and then back to the breath. after they've done that for two days, they have long scratch lists, which will tell them uh, what, uh, you know, the demographics of their distractions looks like. The distribution is generally fairly obvious. Um, Understanding that Vedana are subjective, that the value we give them is not object inherent, that Vedana are conditioned, and that they're generally promising more than they are likely to deliver. Um, Learning to bring mindfulness, in a sustained way to the domain of Vedana. So identifying this in the map of our experience. Say, if you look at the Satipatthanas, not just as meditative exercises with specific sets of exercises, if you look at them also as a simple map of how to chart experience, then you could say first, Kaya Nupasana would be somatic stuff, vedana would be hedonic stuff, Chita would be affective stuff, and uh, Dhamma Nupasana would be cognitive discursive stuff. Yeah? That's obviously not the entire exercise, that's just the territory of your experience in which you begin to actually bring the light of mindfulness to. Um, I understand the major point of doing say Veda Nupasana exercises is to basically slow and finally stop the reactive merry-go-round of seeking and avoidance in respect to triggers yeah, by which, you know, to sensory impingement. And in the long term, it's obviously some insights uh, basically with the hope to instill some realism into our notions of stability, pleasure, ownership, power, self, control, safety. You know, those would be all in psychological terms, areas in which some Deeper realism needs to take place. We we fool ourselves in big ways in these areas. Then I think it's crucial to distinguish between immediate feeling tone and emotional, mental, evaluative reaction. Uh, I think a takeaway is also that hedonic tone and emotions can be separated. For pleasure and displeasure, we don't have a choice in. For desire, aversion, and ignorance in response to hedonic tones, we do. In terms of dependent arising, sorry, the breaking the chain is crucial between Vedana and Tanha, if possible. If it's too late, uh, Tanha has already arisen, then the willingness to hold the tension of unfulfilled desire before going into, or instead of going into grasping. If Upadana has already arisen, it's too late, then at least let's bring mindfulness between our act of grasping and uh, let's call it the morning after, you yeah? If it's too late this time, then okay, let's pay the price, at least not deny that this has happened. So we have basically, ideally, you know, we, st- we hover at Pasa and Vedana doesn't move into the red, yeah? That's an unlikely case. You need to be fairly free for this. Uh, if you have strong Vedana arising, then ideally you would not go into desire. If you do, you're willing to hold the desire. If it's too late, the desire has already been enacted, then you're willing to consciously pay the price and not lie to yourself that what is happening now is uh, somebody else is doing. Yeah. It, explicitly, the old teaching suggests to attempt a number of distinctions, make sure to distinguish these three kinds of Vedana, uh, distinguish bodily and mental Vedana. Um, it, make a distinction between sensory and non-sensory vedana um, i also think that it's necessary to be able to create vedana that are con- conducive to stillness and to states of ease beginning i would say with self-soothing with calming down skills with strengthening the continuity of attentional focus stabilizing spatial field awareness and obviously deepening samadhi yeah those would be types that entail having access to create ease. All Samadhi practice begins with being able to create ease in what may not be a perfect condition, both bodily or mentally. And the capacity to do so is the beginning of any Samatha practice. Um, I deem Svedenar to be important as conditions of ease, well-being, and capacity to be able to self-still bodily and produce unification of mind um, seems to entail forms of pleasant Vedana. I think it's crucial to understand that Vedana is not the eluctable cause for desire and diversion, and desire is not the inevitable consequence of Vedana. The vision would be a life free of reactivity, a greater capacity for contentment and an understanding of happiness beyond gratification or avoidance. A happiness not sheltered off, but in the face of transiency, the inherent unsatisfactoriness of conditions and insubstantiality. I'd like to end with a little quote. I believe it's a poignant recognition of our existential position. A passage in the numerical sayings has the Buddha say, but it is for one who feels that I proclaim, this is suffering, this is the arising of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. I've never found it anywhere else. It is for one who feels that I proclaim all this. Thank you.